Um, so let me begin by, by first really um, presenting my view. There's like two great human needs, I think, that are common to everyone who's, who lives on the face of the globe. And that is the first need is that we are to be loved and give love. Like there's something innate about us, the need for love and the need to give love. And then second need is the need to live forever, that we want to know that our life has continuity of existence beyond this life. Um, I, again, I'm coming from a, a Christian uh, vision today, and a Judeo-Christian ethic states that we're made in the image and likeness of God, and that the premise of that, if I look at the New Testament, simply says that God is love. And that if he's love, and I'm made in his image and likeness, and you're made in his image and likeness, then we all have a vocation to love and a vocation to be loved. You know. The second, that is, to live forever, is an awareness that our human life is, with all its blessings and opportunities right here in this earth, uh, can't contain our greatest aspirations. That we're made for a nobleness that can only be satisfied in living forever. In Ecclesiastes, which is a book in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scripture states that, to, says to God, God, you've placed eternity in our hearts. You know? And that's what he's done. He's placed eternity in our hearts. And what I mean by eternity, I just don't mean living in beyond this life simply. I mean making a difference in the lives of others, that my life counts, my life matters, my life has significance in the lives of others. So to be loved and to give love, experiencing worth and value, I think is so basic to what it means to be human. And then knowing that my life has significance, that it makes a difference. This may sound a little strange to you, but as a priest for over 33, or 33 years, um, uh, I have a lot of funerals I do, and a lot of times I'll try to get to the cemeteries early or I'll stay later because I like to walk through the cemetery and look at all the tombstones. And uh, I, it's a practice I developed early on in the priesthood because as I walk through and look at each tombstone, I think that's a person, and that person matters. That person has value and worth and has, was made to have a significance in this life and to impact people's lives forever. Again, the Judeo-Christian ethic and the Hebrew scriptures, the Christian scriptures affirm that within us. I like to call it, we have what's called a spiritual DNA within each of us. I don't think you need to be a Christian at all to understand that. I think it's just innate to human beings that we have a spiritual DNA within us. When we're deprived of consistently being loved and being able to give love, when we're deprived of the opportunities to have our life having significance and impacting the lives of others, then that spiritual DNA within us gets frustrated. Reminds me of adopted child. I've ministered to a lot of uh, adults who have been adopted. Um, and no matter how loving their parents may have been, are to them as they've grown up, they search for their parents of origin. You know, there's something in us that seeks out our sense of origin because in that there's a sense of, of purpose, of significance, of whether we matter or not. In the Old Testament scriptures, the prophet Jeremiah found this search among his people. He observed how his people deviated from the covenant that God had established with them, and they went in search of other fulfillments. 
Jeremiah, commenting on that in a very revelatory way, said this, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hooned out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Ancient Israel couldn't find their fulfillment in where they were supposed to find their fulfillment, and so they went in search for something. I like to call that they created idols of the heart meaning that their search for love and significance could only come in their covenant relationship with their creator. Jeremiah's vocation was to call them back to that covenant, to the fountain of living water. He called them away from the idols of their heart and to come back to the true spiritual DNA that was within them. Our addictions, then. Our addictions, I like to consider, are like idols of the heart things, people, substance, things that we think will make us feel loved and be loved, things that we think will give us significance, we know experientially, ultimately don't. One of uh, our most insightful Christian leaders in our Catholic tradition, his name is Thomas Aquinas, lived in the 13th century, said this, that as human beings, we don't seek after things that are evil, he says. We seek after things we think will fulfill us and make us happy. These addictions of the heart, um, as you know from your own work in this area and from your own experience, ultimately enslave the human person. They curb freedom, they diminish happiness, they frustrate our search for love, and they frustrate our search to be able to give love and have significance. Again, looking at it from a Christian vision, a Christian vision of redemption for me starts with God becoming human. Now, for some, this may seem very fanciful, mythical, or even foolish. But if God is love, then love is to give and become what the other cannot be for the purpose of lifting that person higher than they could themselves. I learned about this story in the rooms of uh, AA. Perhaps you've heard this story. It's a story about a man who fell into a pit, couldn't get himself out. It was a big hole. And so a priest is walking by, and the guy spots the priest and says, Father, Father, help me. Get out of this hole. And the priest comes over and looks down. He says a prayer for him and walks on. So the next thing is the guy sees a doctor walking by. He says, Doc, Doc, help me get out of this hole. Doc comes over, looks down, writes out a prescription, throws it down in the hole, and walks on. And next he sees his friend Joe walking by. He says, Joe, Joe, get me out of this hole. Joe looks down, and Joe jumps down into the hole. And the, the guy said to him, what'd you do that for, Joe? Now we're both stuck down here. And Joe said, looked at him and said, no, we're not. He said, I've been down here before. I know the way out. That, to me, captures the heart of redemption, God becoming human. He went to show us the way out. When Jesus began his public ministry, according to St. Luke, in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus opens up his, you might say, his first sermon or first homily with saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, healing to the brokenhearted, freedom for those imprisoned, open the eyes of the blind. He says, announce a year of favor. It was drawing people into an encounter with divine love is what Jesus was all about. Pope uh, Emeritus Benedict XVI stated in his work, Jesus of Nazareth, that healing was integral to Jesus' ministry. In fact, he called Christianity, this is 
Pope Benedict called Christianity a therapeutic religion. Christianity, and particularly the word became flesh, begins with an encounter with divine love. Because in that humanness of Jesus, it was love that became visible, personal, and trustworthy. John Baker of the famed Celebrate Recovery Program, which is a Christ-centered 12-step recovery program, stated that time doesn't heal all wounds. God's love, truth, grace, and forgiveness does. If we created cisterns in our heart to drink from that form idols of our heart, then only this kind of love, I believe, can set us free from the idols of our heart. Only this kind of love can free us from the temporal and show us the way to eternal significance of our life. An encounter with divine love, most, I believe, most fully realized in Jesus of Nazareth from the Christian viewpoint, is the water that satisfies is the water that fulfills, is the grace that heals, and is the truth that liberates. I think of the story in the, in the Gospels of the woman at the well. Perhaps you're familiar with the story where Jesus, in the midday, meets this woman at the well. She doesn't have a very good reputation in town. Normally, this time of the, this culture of the world, you don't go out at midday to go get water because it's so hot and you have to carry that. So she comes out at midday. Usually people go in the early morning hours why did she come in at midday? Because she didn't want to be around people because of her background. It was full of shame and guilt, and she had a reputation in town that wasn't so good. So Jesus begins talking and engaging her in conversation, and with compassion, yet with a surgicalness, he begins to speak into her heart, into the idols of her heart. And he begins to isolate the wounds in her heart, you know, and he begins to speak to those wounds. And she begins to realize that the person in front of her has something to offer her that, that she can't get anywhere else. He was offering her the water of life, the water that satisfies, the water that heals her wounds. Reminds me of this, the first step that you may be familiar with. That's realize I'm not God. I admit that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing, and my, my life is unmanageable. She recognized that. And recognizing that, she came to a new freedom in her life. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, happy are those who are spiritually poor. I so appreciate the recovery tradition's insistence on truth of what is. While denial can rear its ugly head at any time, this tradition insists on telling the truth. Jeremiah the prophet centuries before stated, you can't heal the wound by saying it's not there. The 12-step tradition offers truth with compassion, realism with mercy, and sanity with grace. Jesus said we only need a mustard seed of faith to begin the journey. He said if you had a size, mustard seed, if you're not familiar with it, it's like the smallest seed you can find in the Middle East, could fit on the tip of your finger. He says if you had, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, he said you could say to this mountain, be picked up and removed and cast into the sea. That's all we need to begin the journey. Let me share with you a story uh, about Lisa. Lisa is uh, a believer who struggles with codependency and anger. She was abandoned by her mother when she was nine years old, and only to be reunited with her a little bit later on, but sucked into her mother's treacherous uh, lifestyle. She fell victim to sexual abuse, that is, uh, Lisa did, 
and she, which involved several of her mother's boyfriends. And attempt to escape, she went into drinking, doing drugs, um, engaging in all kinds of sexual relationships. She said she would have done anything to crave affection and love. She got married at the age of 19, and that was the last day she saw her mother, because uh, five days later her mother was murdered, stabbed to death. Uh, Lisa, the crime remained unsolved for a long time. Uh, she believed it was one of her um, boyfriends in that violent, codependent relationships that her mother was involved in. But Lisa, uh, like Abigail in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, she says that she married a man who was angry and destructive, a blackout drinker who was totally controlling. He dictated to her what she was to wear, uh, who she was supposed to go out with, what her friends were supposed to be. But she said that the greatest joys of her life came from that first marriage, her two sons, Jason and Eric. So after her eventual divorce, she began to live a, uh, a lifestyle again of all kinds of different relationships in her life, which resulted in an abortion and relinquishing a child for adoption. Lisa got married a second time, and again, to an angry man. He drank, did drugs verbally, and physically abused her. She said, this is what Lisa said, I justified his behaviors and my relationships by comparing them to my childhood experiences. I truly believe that love equaled sex and abuse. Again, the idols of her heart were overwhelming to her. So she goes on to say that while in the midst of her second divorce, she found her way to a particular Christian church, and during that time she met a man named Peter. And he said, she said he was cute, he was, he was sweet, and he made me laugh, she said. I soon learned, though, that Peter drank and his walls were covered with pornography. And I thought this was normal. So we moved in together. I invited Peter to church, and we attended for a while, and then Peter stopped going. And I, like a good, dependent girlfriend, I agreed to stop going too, she said. Lisa says this, our life became miserable. I began to resent Peter's addictions to pornography and alcohol and finally found a way to let him know how I felt. She had an affair. And, one, and she did that to hurt Peter as much as his magazines were hurting her. She tried everything to do whatever Peter wanted in a woman, but deep down inside, Lisa said she felt degraded and unloved. Lisa said this, I told myself that I wasn't pretty enough, that I wasn't thin enough, I wasn't sexy enough to compete with the other women in his videos. She says their relationship fell apart, but they remembered that church that they had stopped going to, and they went back to it. And that church also had, going, had established for them the Celebrate Recovery uh, program, and uh, they began to engage themselves with people through this. She says, during this time, the Spirit of God became incredibly real to me. God led me to deal with my anger. As I worked principle four and step four, she said, I grasped for the first time that the sexual, sexual and physical abuse of my childhood weren't my fault. Despite the knowledge that I had truly been a victim, I was able to let go of the victim mentality. See, something greater had to happen in Lisa's life for her to let go of that victim mentality, and that was an encounter with God's love for her. She goes on to say this, I made the decision to forgive and trust again, and start, I started with Peter. Forgiveness came first. Peter was vulnerable enough to admit everything he had done, 
no matter much, how much he knew it would hurt me, and I was able to forgive him. I'm sure that she would never have been able to forgive him until she had first encountered a love that could conquer the, the wounds of her own heart, a love that was greater than any kind of love that she had known. She goes on to say this, the more I trusted Peter, or the more I trusted God, the more I trusted Peter. And the more I trusted God, the more I realized how loved, how valued I was to him. So Peter became truly cherished to me, loved, and he truly valued me. On December 17, 1994, we were married, she says. She said, Peter and I have continued to grow in intimacy with each other and with God. I finally realized the true joy and peace weren't to be found in sex, drugs, food, or men, but only in Jesus Christ. Through my relationship with Jesus, I've been able to forgive those who abused me, ask forgiveness for those who have hurt me, and recognize that since Jesus forgave me, I'm free to forgive myself. I can live my life. I thought this was a key thing. She said, I can live my life in response to God's grace, not in pursuit of it. I became a whole person who can love others as I myself am loved. Lisa encountered God's love. It was an encounter. It just wasn't a statement of a fact. It wasn't just a theory. It wasn't just a proposition and statement wasn't a ritual or a liturgy. It was an encounter with a love that conquered her heart and healed the wounds of her heart. Reminds me of, going back to the New Testament scriptures, reminds me of some people in the New Testament, the 12 apostles, people whom we perhaps are familiar with, and the numerous men and women who were disciples of Jesus. You know, they began... Three years before Pentecost, they began a journey with Jesus that I don't think they had any idea where that journey was going to take them. It was kind of like their own journey to recovery, you might say. They were entrenched in their own addictions, their own idols of the heart. They were captured by the message of Jesus of Nazareth. They were in awe of his mighty deeds and power, his love and mercy for the lives of broken and wounded people. They experienced a love from him that just poured out of the pores of his body. It was a love that forgave. It was a love that liberated, a love that gave significance. But they themselves still debated in their heart and among themselves who he was. They faltered in their faith. They fought with each other. They were clamoring for position and power and status. They were engrossed in their own addictions. At the crucifix, they all left him. At the crucifixion, they all left him. Some left, all left in fear, but one denied him and one betrayed him. And they found in that moment that their heart was so overwhelmed, so suffocating by their addictions, they, had, they didn't have the ability to respond with courage. When Jesus appeared to them in the upper room, you know, alive and risen, they realized they couldn't go back to life as usual, but they were still trapped in the idols of their heart. And he knew that. So he said to them, wait here till you receive power from on high, then you'll be my witnesses. So they did. And when Pentecost occurred, they encountered a divine love, a love that conquered their hearts, conquered their idols, gave them the inner ability to become a new self. They tasted not only his love, they tasted their worth to him 
and they felt their significance and their destiny. And they could do what they couldn't do before. They could live and speak in courage. They could sacrifice. They could suffer with joy. They could give and receive love because they knew that their life was loved and they knew that their life mattered in a significant and eternal way. At Pentecost, the fire of God's heart overcame the idols of their heart. And they realized the truth of the 12th step, having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps. We try to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. This was a love that conquered their heart and enabled them to become something that they weren't before. As Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. And that's what they did. That was the journey that began for them three years earlier. In a sense, in a way, came to a culmination at Pentecost when the fire of his love for them conquered the idols of their heart and freed them to give with away what they have experienced themselves. God's love, encounter with God's love, I think is a key to healing the wounds of our heart and the wounds of those that we minister to. So, so if we just stop for just a moment, I'm going to pray. And uh, again, um, perhaps we come from different faith traditions or perhaps no uh, faith tradition at all. So we pray to the God of your understanding. So God, we come here today and we just give over to you the time that we have. And we're thankful for the life you've given to us. And for the heart of who you are, which is love. So we ask that as we move through this day, you may enable us, empower us, and lead us to grow in a deeper appreciation for you as love, but an encounter with that love. So that the wounds of our heart can be healed so we may be able to give to others who are suffering, who are broken by life situations, a love that can conquer the wounds of their heart. And we thank you for this. I thank you for each of the people that are here this morning and for their, their love for you, their dedication to those that are truly hurting and broken of heart. And in the midst of such great challenges, we ask for the wisdom that we need. And we thank you for this as we pray. Amen. Thank you, Father. Yeah. All right.